reverence of God's word as we read our passage today. If you have your Bible, we'll be in Galatians chapter 5. If you don't, it'll be up on the screen. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. The Apostle Paul here writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You have a seat. So I got a, if, you, if you're new here, my name's Christian. My family and I are members here at Woods Edge. Um, and occasionally, a couple times a year, I'll fill in to preach if, I'll, if our lead pastor is away. Uh, and since I'm not a pro, not a pro preacher, uh, I need a lot of help. And so I make it my practice to, to share the sermon that I write with my wife. She's a, an incredible writer and a godly woman. And so I asked for her feedback. And I want you to know that as I, as I gave her the sermon the other night, she actually had tears in her eyes. And not because she was moved, because it was so painfully bad. And (laughs) this has only happened a couple times over the last decade. Um, Now, the good news is she gave me some feedback, and I've implemented it. So uh, even if it's really bad, just know it could have been much, much worse. (laughs) And so if you see my lovely wife today, say thank you to her. She's a grace to all of us. Uh, I came across uh, a story recently about a guy named Sam Van Aken. And Sam was born in the early 1970s on a farm in Pennsylvania Dutch country. Uh, Sam went on to become a New York-based artist uh, and also a professor of sculpture at Syracuse University. Back in 2008, Sam was looking for a multicolored bud tree to use as an art exhibit. And in his research, he came across a state-owned orchard in central New York uh, it was a stone fruit orchard, so if you, I, don't, I didn't know what stone fruit was, but it's fruit with a pit, like a, a peach or a plum. And the state was actually preparing to cut the trees down and sell the land, so as a conservationist and an artist, Sam decided to take a lease on the land. He began recultivating the orchard, uh, and then over time, because he couldn't find the multicolored tree he was envisioning, he decided he was going to create one. So over the course of years, he created what he calls the tree of 40 fruit. And I've got a picture here. Take a look at this. Tree of 40 fruit. It's, it, this one is actually in New York City, but it's remarkable because it has 40 different types of stone fruit buds on this one tree. And when they're all in bloom together, you get an incredible mosaic. And then if you're actually to see it with fruit budding, you see that it's got the native fruit that it was, it, we've got a picture of that too, a native fruit that it was meant to grow along with all these other types of fruit that grow next to it. This isn't the kind of thing you just stumble across in in the forest, right? Um, Now, what's interesting is he's begun to export these from New York to all over the country. And so coast to coast now, different communities will have these that you can go look at. We don't have one in Houston yet, so we'll have to write Sam a letter and ask. But it it takes, uh, I'm guessing we don't have a lot of arborists here. And so you may not understand how that would happen. So let me give you a crash course in grafting. Grafting is the process by which Sam 
created this tree. So Sam would take um, rootstock, which is the tree that he's beginning with, the, the principal tree that he starts with, and then he would identify uh, other trees that he would want to graft into that tree or join into it. And so he would cut off a 12 or 13 inch uh, branch from one of those trees, and that would, be, that would be called the budwood. He would then go back to the rootstock tree, the primary tree, who would create an incision in one of the branches, and then he would take the budwood, insert it into the rootstock, and he would bind it up with tape. And, and over the course of time, the, the branches would fuse together and begin to heal. And then eventually the nutrients from the soil would come up through the rootstock into the budwood. And if the graft is successful, then over the course of two or three years, the budwood will begin to grow the fruit that it was intended to grow. So if you have a rootstock, which is a peach tree, and then you graft in a, a plum branch, the budwood is a plum branch, over two to three years, if successful, you will start to see plums growing next to peaches. And on this tree, you see 40 different types of stone fruit growing together. Uh, pretty remarkable to see what is created. And I think this picture is helpful for us as we think about this passage today. So look back at verse 16, where Paul says, But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desire of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So Paul immediately identifies here two competing desires, that of the Spirit of God and that of the flesh. Now he uses the term flesh here not to refer principally to just our body, our physical body, but actually to our sinful fallen nature. In other words, what he's saying here is that the Spirit of God wants one thing and we in our natural selves want something else, something contrary. And this matter of desire, of wanting, is key to understanding this passage and it's really key to understanding how and why we live the way that we do. If you're a uh, music fan, you may be familiar with the Rolling Stones and that most uh, august theologian Mick Jagger who leads that group. And he famously sang, you can't always get what you want. And I think that's probably self-evident, probably right. I would, I would actually submit this morning, though, I would go further, I'd say that even if you can't always get what you want, you always do what you want. You always do exactly what it is you want to do. Now, you may object and say, well, wait a minute. Didn't the passage just say to keep you from doing the things you want to do? And didn't the same author in, in uh, Romans 7, didn't he write that I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not, want to do, I keep on doing. So if that's true, then how could it be, Christian, that we always do what we want? Uh, so if you would allow me to, to uh, appeal to someone much smarter and more eloquent than I to help distinguish uh, and clarify what I'm, what I'm saying here. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, who was an actual theologian, not of the rock and roll type, he lived in the 18th century in New England. He was actually the first president of Princeton University. You may have heard of him. He wrote a treatise called The Freedom of the Will. And in this, um, in this lecture, in this writing, he, he starts off by defining the will. So what do we mean when we say our will? And he says the will is that by which the mind chooses. That by which the mind chooses, whatever it chooses, is, is the will. And he goes on to say that the mind chooses that which it's most inclined to at the moment. So in other words we always act according to our strongest inclination at the time. Now you may object again and you may say, oh, wait a minute, I can think of lots of examples of times that I've done something that I didn't want to do. So let me see if I can, if I can illustrate. Um, if your boss says to you, you need to come into work on Saturday or you're fired. 
if you value keeping your job more than you value your day off, you're going to go into work on Saturday. Now, when you go into your work on Saturday, is it going to be against your will? No, it's going to be in alignment with your will. Now, you may say, I have a preference not to go to work. I have a preference for resting on the weekend. Uh, I have a philosophical commitment to the idea of, of resting two days a week. But in the moment of choosing, if you desire more to keep your job than you desire to have your day off, then you will go into work and it will be exactly what you will. Now, of course, there is an exception to this, at least one, uh, physical coercion, right? So my kids are still small, and so at, at this point, I'm still bigger than they are. And so when we wrestle at night, I can, I can make them do what I want. I can grab their hands, and I can make them slap their own face, and I can make them tickle themselves. They're not doing that because they want to or because they will it, but rather it's pure physical force overbearing them. And so in those instances, we don't do what we want. But any time that we're acting volitionally, we always do what we want to do. So when Paul says he does not do what he wants to do, he's really speaking figuratively. If he were speaking technically or more precisely, what he'd be saying is, I do not do what I want to want to do. In other words, I wish it was the case that I didn't want to do evil, but when the moment of choosing comes, in the moment of doing, what I most want is to do evil, which is why I do evil. I do that which I'm most inclined to at the moment. So if our will is our mind choosing and our choice is always according to our strongest desire, then this whole matter comes down to desire. Paul says the desires of the spirit and the desires of the flesh are opposed to each other. And so the next thing we do at any given moment in time is always going to be to act according to our strongest inclination. This is important to understand because Paul here is then going to move in verse 19. He's going to say, now listen, the works of the flesh are evident. And then he gives us this list, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, etc. After Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve rebel against God, and by the way, recall that their act of rebellion was principally in eating fruit that they were prohibited from eating. After Genesis 3, sin enters the world and affects, infects all of creation. And so we, in our natural state, um, have sin. We have sinful desires. And that, that, that sin that infects us actually causes our instincts to be bad and wrong and gives us desires that are out of alignment with what God desires. They cause us to want the works of the flesh. And so left to ourselves, apart from any grace of God, our lives would be a total illustration of the works of the flesh. And even if we become new in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And yet, even if we're a new creation, we are still assailed by the flesh. As long as we're in this body, as long as we live on earth, we are going to feel the residual effects of sin. It is a, ultimately, it is a defeated foe for those who are in Christ. And yet, in its death throes, we will feel its influence. And, and you, can, you can recognize that uh, very easily that, that habits are hard to break. And, and bad patterns that we develop out of our sinful instinct are hard to break. Uh, you can probably think of two or three habits that you may have that you wish you didn't. You have a preference for not doing that thing, and yet when the moment of choosing comes, you do it. Uh, I pop my knuckles. In fact, if, you, if I sit near you during worship on Sunday, you probably know that I pop my knuckles. It's not a good habit. I wish that I didn't do it. And yet when the time comes for choosing, when I, what I want to do most is to pop my knuckles, and so, and so I do it. Uh, Charles Duhigg wrote a book called The Power of Habit, and he, he makes this observation. He says, the real power of habit is the insight 
that your habits are what you choose them to be. Your habits are only what you choose them to be. He's saying the same thing that, that Edward said. We always act according to our strongest inclination at the time. Now in verse 22, Paul's going to change gear here a little bit. I mean, he's laid out the works of the flesh, and now he's going he's to take a right, and he's going to say, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, then let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So here Paul, again, he's drawing on this, this picture of, of trees, right? He, he gives us a word picture about fruit growing on a tree. Now, you may, you may recall that there are a few other places in the New Testament that draw on this same imagery. Uh, John 15, for instance, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Uh, Romans 11, perhaps a little bit less familiar, but there the Apostle Paul, who's the same author that wrote Galatians 5 that we read this morning, he actually says that the, the Jewish people are the chosen people of God and they are included in the family of God. And Gentiles or non-Jews are also included in the family of God by the work of Christ. And the mechanism for that, now sometimes Paul uses the language of adoption. We're adopted into the family of God. In Romans 11, he also uses the language of grafting. He says that Gentiles are grafted into the family of God. So there, the Jewish people are the rootstock and Gentiles become the budwood grafted into the family of God. So here Paul in Galatians 5 is saying essentially that we, we naturally are a kind of tree that bears a particular kind of fruit. And that fruit looks like the works of the flesh. And he gives us this list of bad acts. But then he exhorts us and he says, look, instead we want to bear a different kind of fruit. Now we already know that a tree can only bear the kind of fruit that it bears naturally. Unless a new kind of fruit is grafted in. How does God accomplish this? Ultimately, what we need, because we know that we are governed by our desire, our actions result from our strongest inclination at the time. We know that we have bad desires that still re uh, reside in us. Our inclinations are tinged by our sin. So how is it then that we're supposed to have the right kind of desire that leads to the right kind of action that bears fruit of the Spirit? What we need is a new heart that's governed by new desires. Titus 3 says he saved us not because of any righteous act that we have done, but because of his mercy. Just pause there. Just know today that, it, that if, if you're saved, if God has saved you, it is, it is not owing to any good thing that you have done or any good thing that you will do. It is solely by his mercy. So we're saved not by the, any righteous thing that we have done. It says he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration and renewal. That word regeneration, we probably don't use that word a lot. What does that word mean? It means to be made alive again. It means to take something dead and make it alive. Now, dead things don't make themselves come back to life, do they? If something is dead or dormant, it, it requires an outside force to give it life. Listen to what Ezekiel 36 says. Here the prophet Ezekiel speaking, or God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel to his people. And he says, And I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart. The kind of heart that gives us instincts that lead to the works of the flesh. I'm going to take out your stony, stubborn heart. And I'm going to give you a tender and responsive heart. The kind of heart that gives us desires and inclinations that lead to bearing fruit of the spirit. This heart transplant is essential 
for us to have capacity for the grafting of the fruit of the Spirit to take hold. The grafting of the fruit of the Spirit will not take hold in us. It will not be effective unless we have a new heart. Um, as Jesus says, unless we're born again. Without being born again, without having a new heart, we are left in our natural state where we have sinful rootstock. And if, if a grafting attempt is made, it won't take. It won't be successful. Think about, for instance, if you need a kidney. If you need a kidney and you need a, a donor, you can't just go out to the street and find any random person walking down the street and say, can I have your kidney? Because, I mean, I guess for one thing, that would just be socially inappropriate to do that. But, but more importantly, it has to be a match. It has to be a blood type match and a tissue type match for that grafting to take place. If you get a kidney and put it inside of you and it's not the right match, then your body will see it as a foreign invader. It will fight against it to kill it. It has to be a match for the grafting to take place. This regeneration is essential. Now, I would guess that perhaps many of us here, maybe even most of us here, have trusted in Christ and by grace through faith have experienced this regeneration. We've experienced this heart transplant that Ezekiel talks about. But I just want to say that this morning, if you're trusting in anything else today except for Christ's finished work on the cross, for your reconciliation to God, for your inclusion in the family of God, if you're holding to anything today other than grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, your hope is simply misplaced. It's by God's grace and by his initiative alone that we receive a new heart. So first, he saves us by the washing through regeneration and renewal. Back to John 15. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. He's the gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Do you see the renewal there? I mean, think about crepe myrtles, which are going to be blooming here soon. Crepe myrtles have the beautiful season, a vibrant color, and then uh, fall and winter come and they die. And so we're left with just the crispy brown bud. And what do we do? We go through and we prune it. We cut it off so that it makes room for renewal. So that when spring comes, we get the new buds flourishing. Verse 4, Jesus says, As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Do you hear what he's saying? I am the rootstock. You are the budwood. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, get this, apart from me, you can do nothing. We have to recognize the absolute qualification that Jesus gives us here. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. It says we cannot bear fruit. Listen, the fruit of the Spirit, we cannot bear it in our lives unless we are abiding in the vine, which is Jesus. It's not that we may not. It's not, a, it's not an issue of permission. It's not that we will usually not. It's not an issue of pattern. It's, a, it's an issue of ability. You cannot bear the fruit of the Spirit unless you are abiding in the vine. Now, we may exhibit some of the traits of that list, love, joy, peace, patience, right? We may exhibit some of those traits, and certainly we can be kind and patient without being in Christ. Uh, some of the kindest and most patient people I know are not Christians. But there can be a danger in this, because if our behavior generally aligns with the biblical ethic, if, if we generally avoid what, what we consider to be immoral things, and we generally pursue or give ourselves to what we consider to be good or moral things, we can be 
tricked into a false sense of security, thinking, well, certainly if my life looks like that list, then God must be pleased with me. Certainly, if I'm a kind and patient person, then it must be that I'm reconciled to God and, and everything is right in this relationship. And it's simply, that's not the case. This isn't an act, this isn't a list of acts that please God. This isn't a list of acts that merit our position before God or win our favor before God. It's a description of a life that is reconciled to God. The fruit of the Spirit is not something that we can will ourselves to exhibit. It's not even our doing. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of the Christian, not the fruit of the religious person, not, a, not the fruit of the good person who tries hard to do the right things, the fruit of the Spirit. You've probably at some point um, been at a table with a really convincing centerpiece, maybe a plant or fruit, and you're looking closely and you're trying to determine, is that a real apple or is that, is that a piece of wax fruit? I can't quite tell until I get up and really touch it. Or that plant, is that, a, is, that a, is that a live plant or is that a silk plant? I can't tell. It's really well done. So, of course, we can exhibit things that look like the fruit of the Spirit uh, in our own accord, in our own will, but that's not what this passage is talking about. It's not talking about doing things that look like good things, moral things that God wants us to do. It's talking about bearing the fruit of the Spirit, which can only be born genuinely by the Spirit of God. Now, I don't know uh, if there are any water skiers here. Um, I grew up in northern Oklahoma. It's similar to this area where, you, you know, you've got a couple lakes and it's hot in the summer, so people go to the lake. Uh, and if, if you've ever learned to ski, you probably remember this experience where you jump off the back of the ski boat and you've got a ski vest on, like a life jacket. And you're out in the water and, and you're drifting away from the boat uh, and you, you try to put on one or two skis. Now, the skis are heavy, they're cumbersome, they're awkward the first time you're trying to put them on. Trying to put them on in the water is, is, is a sort of a strange experience the first time. So you're way behind the boat. They toss out a rope. And the idea is you're going to hold onto the rope and the boat's going to pull you. But before it starts, you're supposed to get in a skiing position. And, the, and, and so as you're trying to get into a skiing position, preparing yourself to get pulled by the boat, there's going to be wake in the water. It's going to be windy. The boat is going to be listing and turning. You're going to be turning. Your skis are going to be trying to go all kinds of different directions. And you start to panic because you know at any moment this boat is going to start moving and, and you're going to be behind it. So you've got to be in the right position. So instinctively what we do is we start to tread water and swim and try to muscle ourselves into a skiing position. And our, and our body tenses up and we're trying to make it happen. And what an expert would tell you or a teacher is they would say, the harder you try to get into the skiing position, the more out of position you are. What you have to learn to do is to just relax into the ski vest. You just have to relax in the water and let the vest cause you to float and just remain still. And the boat ultimately is going to straighten its way out and it's going to pull you into position and you're going to be ready to go. And then once the boat starts going, again, instinct, our instincts are all wrong because we think, Ultimately, I know that what I need to be doing is standing up on these skis on the water. So as the boat starts to drag me, what I want to do is use all the strength of my legs to try to stand up. And I'm going to use all the strength of my arms to try to tug on the rope. And, and again, what a teacher would tell you is the more that you try to use your power to stand up and the more that you tug on that rope, the more likely it is that you're going to get dumped into the lake. What you need to do after relaxing into the vest in your ski position is just keep your legs bent and your arms straight and let the boat do the work of pulling you up. You will eventually come up. And the harder we try to make it happen, the more likely we are to be totally out of position. And, that, and that's, that's how it is with the fruit of the Spirit. We can't muscle our way into exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. It's a work of God. If you took the greatest water skier in the world and put him out in the lake with no boat, how much skiing are they going to do? 
No skiing. They're just floating in the lake. That's not a sport, right? That's not a thing. The boat is doing all the work. The life jacket is making you float. And so the idea here is just to submit to the power of the process. It's going to work out if you let the right thing do the action. So if for us, if, if, if what we're saying is, look, for us, to, if for us to bear the fruit of the Spirit means that we need to uh, abide in Christ. What does it mean to abide? That, again, that's not a word that we use a lot. The word abide means to remain, to stay, to wait. It means to remain in common purpose, to stay present, not just physically, but mentally and spiritually. Whatever else it might mean for us to abide in Christ, it at least means this, that we spend intentional, unhurried, focused time listening and submitting ourselves to Christ through the reading of the scriptures, through personal and corporate prayer, in worship, in communion, in confession of sin, in service to others. Listen to what Andrew Murray says. He wrote a book called Abiding in Christ where he deals uh, exclusively with John 15 and Jesus' instruction to us to abide. Here's what Murray says. He says, A soul filled with large thoughts of the vine will be a strong branch and will abide confidently in him. Get this. Be much occupied with Jesus and believe much in him. Let it be your first care to abide in him in undivided fervent devotion of heart. If you're a water skier, let it be your first concern to just relax into the ski vest and let the boat do the work. If you want to bear the fruit of the Spirit, let it be your first concern to abide in Christ, to be much occupied with him and to believe much in him. This is not about striving. It's not about working. It's not about trying harder. It's not about being better. It's about resting in his presence and his promise and letting our minds and our hearts be occupied with him. We sang one of my favorite hymns today. What heights of love, what depths of peace, what fears, or when fears are stilled, and then what? When strivings cease. That's how we bear the fruit of the Spirit. Now, If our pattern is to spend five or ten minutes a day hurriedly reading the Bible and praying, and then we spend the remaining 16 to 20 hours of our day being consumed and influenced by other loves and other teachers, should we expect that new desires will emerge in our heart? Perhaps not. It's been said that it takes 10,000 hours of practice to become an expert at something. In other words, it takes time. We're not trying to become experts on Jesus. We want to be intimates of Jesus. And so what we need to do then is we need to be dwellers in Jesus' presence more than doers of Jesus' commands. Jesus says, if you abide in me, if you will dwell in me, you will obey me. You will bear much fruit if you abide in me. So rather than busying ourselves out of a religious sense of trying to do the right things and earn God's approval and favor, what we need to do is be dwellers in Jesus' presence and the Spirit will bear fruit in our life. So just as Sam Van Aken's tree of 40 fruit, it takes time to change and heal and grow to produce the fruit that he wants, so it is in the Christian life. And so in John 15, Jesus says 11 times, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. When we're around people regularly, they just start to rub off on us, right? Right? We, we just start to, we start to pick up their traits and their, their mannerisms. Um, I was just in a truck. Uh, I've been at this, working at this company for two years. And I was riding in a truck with a guy last week. And he said something that, that I realized 
he said something that a lot of people in our company say, and it was the word absolutely, but with the emphasis on lutely in kind of a strange way. I absolutely want to do that. I am absolutely going to go get lunch with you. And I realized that if you walk around the halls of our, of our company, you're going to hear people say absolutely in that way. And I don't know who started it, but it's just the case that we, when we are around people, we just start to act like them. We start to pick up on what they do. That's what we want it to be like with Jesus. We want to spend so much time abiding in Christ that we just begin to speak like him. We just begin to have patience like him. We just begin to see the kingdom of God coming in the way that he saw. We, we begin to see other people, not as obstacles to us or not as impediments or not as frustrations, but rather as image bearers of God the Father. We want Jesus' mannerisms and speech and language to, to rub off on us, not not just, not just a kind of strange, habituated speech pattern that makes us say absolutely in a strange way, but we want to take on his very character. Now, if we don't abide, if we take Jesus 11 times telling us to abide in me, abide in me, if we decide we're not going to do that, and we continue to give our time and our focus to our careers and our hobbies and our interests at the exclusion of abiding, we may achieve fascinating professional lives and we may take neat vacations and we may remain well entertained until the day we die and we will get to the end of our race at best as acquaintances of Jesus rather than intimates of Jesus. I want to close uh, by just telling a little story about my family. Uh, some of you who know us know we have four kids, but once upon a time we only had two kids. And so back then, uh, our two oldest were maybe four and five and kind of post-toddler age, but still had a lot of toddler in them. And they had seen something on a movie or, or TV show, and they said, uh, we want to have family time in front of the fire. Um, side note, I don't know, I'm, we're kind of new to Houston. Why do we have fireplaces in Houston, right? It's like 90 degrees on Christmas here. So we've got a fireplace, and so a couple times a year, we'll, we'll get it going. So the boys say, we want to have family time by the fire. We say, okay. And so I go out and I get the firewood. I put it in. I work. I get the kindling going, get this fire moving. Uh, my wife starts to lay out blankets. We get pillows arranged. She and I lie down in front of the fire. I take her by my side. We're snuggled up. We say, boys, we're ready. Come on over. And our boys lay on either side of us and we begin to cuddle. But if you have kids that age or you've been through that life season, you know that we didn't just, we didn't just have family time in front of the fire because within 10 seconds, it was just like wet cats. It was just like a frenzy of activity with these kids jumping around and wanting to rearrange pillows and pull more blankets into the pallet and switch places. And daddy, you move over there and I want to be by mommy. And it was just so frenetic. And we were trying to tell the kids, like, boys, it's all ready. All we have to do to have family time by the fire is just rest. Just stop moving. Just get into my lap and abide. Right? Like you're not going to add anything to this experience by pulling more pillows and we've done all that's necessary to make this happen. And guys, all you need to do is just rest in what we've done. Just rest in our presence and we will have family time by the fire. Don't try to make family time by the fire happen. Rest and it's going to happen. And you know what? They weren't able to rest and so they just... <laughs> They just scurried about and we never actually had family time by the fire. But we did have a good object lesson in the fruit of the Spirit. And so I hope that we can take that encouragement today and, and together, if you're, if you're like I am, the reason, that I, the reason that I chose this passage today is because this year I'm focused on the fruit of the Spirit because there are some real gaps in my life. There are some, some very important areas in my life where I am not evidencing the fruit of the Spirit. And I'm evidencing rather things that look more like the works of the flesh. 
And so I know that I need, I need to have more of the fruit of the Spirit in my life. And what I've discovered, and probably you have too, is I can't make it happen. I'm just not able to muscle myself in to being the kind of person who, who evidences the fruit of the Spirit. Rather, what I need to do is submit and rest in Christ, abide in Him. Abiding in Him and the fruit of the Spirit will make itself evident. So today, be much occupied with Jesus and believe much in Him. Let me pray for us as we close. Father, we are so grateful to you today that you have loved us and you have pursued us. And despite the fact that we are, all of us, um, sinful, selfish, um, I mean, the, the list of things that we are that, that, would, that would be our negative self-talk is very long and, and the list actually would not be accurate enough. And yet, God, despite our sin and despite our rebellion against you, you've loved us and you've pursued us. And Jesus, you've actually taken on flesh to do all that was required that we could be reconciled to the Father, that we could be grafted into the family of God and that we could actually bear the fruit of the Spirit by abiding in Christ. So today, Holy Spirit, would you be at work in us and help us to rest and to stop striving and to stop trying to muscle our way into, into pleasing the Father, knowing that the Father is fully pleased with us, not because of any righteous act that we've done, but because of his mercy. God, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.